through the book of Philippians and talking a little bit about it, uh, about the uh, purpose of the letter and some of the uh, reasons that Paul would write. We know that the Philippian church is uh, identified not only in the book of Acts, but also in some things that Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the Philippian church. Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia. And um, uh, we know from the information given to us in Scripture that uh, the, the church at Philippi was, if anybody was, uh, were partners with Paul, it was them. They'd sent uh, gifts to support him several times. They had sent uh, messengers to help him in his ministry endeavors. Uh, we know one man, Epaphroditus, who uh, was sent to Rome when Paul was in prison and uh, with a gift and, and supplies and, and so forth. Uh, prisoners were, uh, in Roman days, prisoners were not fed by the, by the government. Uh, there weren't three meals a day. They didn't have uh, rights and privileges and so forth. Uh, if Rome threw you in jail, they didn't care if you died or not. And so if there wasn't somebody on the outside that cared enough about you to send supplies for you, that was it. And Paul had uh, a few people, not a lot of people that, uh, that we have record of, but he had a few people that, uh, that did care about him enough to provide for him, and the church at Philippi was one of those groups. And uh, I guess all of the letters of Paul, certainly they're all significant, and they're unique in their own way, but the, the letter that he wrote to Philippi is perhaps the most personal of any letters that he wrote to any church. Now, it's, uh, it would be on par, I guess, with the letter that he wrote to Titus and to Timothy, two letters he wrote to Timothy, but he shares some information with them uh, from a personal standpoint that kind of shows, um, well, you get to look behind the, person, the public persona of Paul in the, in the book of Philippians, particularly in, uh, in chapter 3, what we're going to see tonight. Paul has identified to them that he had rather go on and be with the Lord, but it's better for the churches if he stays here. He's identified to them that uh, uh, the importance of them living out what they believe, working out their own salvation. He talked about in the last half of uh, chapter 2 about Epaphroditus, the messenger that they sent to help Paul. Apparently Epaphroditus got sick somewhere, either on the way or after he got to him or something. And the word got back to Philippi that uh, Epaphroditus was sick, and so they were concerned, apparently, that uh, Epaphroditus wouldn't be able to finish his job and do the work that he was sent to do and Paul sends back word and he sends this letter back with Epaphroditus so that they can all see that he's okay. So that brings us to chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Notice when Paul says finally in his letters, he's saying I'm wrapping it up. Uh, Philippians has two wrap-ups. I guess it's kind of like me sometimes when I say turn in your Bible to one last scripture, we'll close with this. And then I think of something else and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, one more scripture. Apparently, Paul does some, some, uh, somewhat of the same thing. Because chapter 3, he's intending to, to sum it up. Chapter 4, he says finally again with the final point. Uh, although they are related, I may not be fair. Uh, I may be being unfair to Paul a little bit at, uh, with that example. Because they are related. But he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but, it is, but for you it is safe. Now, the same things he's referring to could be a letter that he sent to him that we don't have. If that's not it, then he's referring to something that he said earlier in, the, in uh, chapter 2. 
chapter 2 and verse 18, he talks about, for this cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. But that doesn't seem to fit. So apparently there was some other correspondence that Paul had sent to uh, Philippi, the church at Philippi, at another time in another setting that we don't have record of. But anyway, he says uh, he, does, he does this because he wants them to be safe and reminded of the truth. So he places rejoicing in the Lord on a pretty high level. Then he says something in chapter 3 and verse 2 where he's warning them. He begins a warning of, about certain people. I'm reading from the King James. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Um, Paul makes up a word here. This is, it sounds like and, and looks like in, in the King James that there are three things. He's saying beware of three different types of people or three people or one person, type of person with three characteristics. He makes up a word. He hyphenates three words, dogs, evildoers, and concision. He literally says, beware of dogs, evildoers, concision. Now, concision is a, um, a play, a derogatory term on the, the, uh, the word con- circumcision. And here, Paul is, to me at least, is showing a little bit more of his uh, real attitude toward things. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Some of the most important things that I ever learned from Brother Hagen, I learned when it was just me and him talking one-on-one. Because when he was in public, he was aware that everybody was listening and not everybody would have the backstory or all the details on, on whatever he might say and that type of thing. So he was, uh, uh, he was always sincere, but he was guarded. When he was in public, he was guarded about certain things, particularly when it came to uh, doctrines and teachings in the church and things like that. But when you get him on a personal level, he'd tell you what he really thought about it because he knew who you were, talking about me personally. He knew that I wouldn't take it and run with it or try to use it against him or anything like that so he could share the truth with me. And I'm so glad that he did about some of those things because I learned. They were things for me to learn. I learned what to say in public and what not to say in public. I learned that just because I wasn't hearing something in public doesn't mean that that's not what Brother Hagin saw or felt or heard or or, uh, believed about the situation. It confirmed a lot of things that I had in my heart. Well, this is what Paul's doing with Philippi. He's writing them a letter. Now, we don't know if Paul understands that his purpose, uh, the purpose God has given him is to write letters that are going to be saved for posterity. But this is a personal letter to a Philippian church that cares about him in a church that he loves and that, that has proved their love to him over and over again. So he uses three derogatory terms for those that are coming into the churches. We don't have any record that they've come into Philippi at this point in time, but we know this what they did in Corinth. We know it's what they did in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. Judaizers would come in and demand that Gentile Christians, people that had been born again from paganism, worshiping idols, would demand that they get circumcised. And that was, for them, the sign of good standing with God, no matter what you did or didn't believe about Jesus. And so Paul shows his attitude toward the work of the devil against the churches that he's established. He said, beware of dogs. It's interesting that the first name that he gives these people is what they call the rest of the world, the Gentile world. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. Paul calls them dogs. Evil workers, he tells them to beware of evil workers. This is a play on, um, or a reference, I should say, 
to Psalm 6 where David is praying and seeking the Lord's guidance. And he says something like this about verse 6, 7, somewhere around there in Psalm 6. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's what this is. This means workers of iniquity. So he's using the Old Testament, the Bible of the Jews, to identify themselves. Now the word concision is interesting because it literally means mutilators of the flesh. Paul is literally saying, beware of the mutilating party. Because he understood, even in the Old Testament, it says, at least in two places, Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah chapter 4, where God is saying, circumcise your hearts. See, that was understood even under the Old Testament through the prophets. That circumcision was just an outward sign until something else took its place. Because God was calling for Israel to circumcise their hearts. In other words, serve him from your heart, not just with an outward show, an act of obedience, even the act of obedience that was given, by, uh, given through Abraham, which is circumcision. So he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, the mutilators. One uh, commentator calls them the snippers. You decide for yourself if that's a good term. He says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. Now, like I said, we don't have any record and any reason to believe at this point, at the point that Paul writes, I mean, that these people have gotten into the Philippian church and it's taken hold in some way. But we do know that it's already taken hold in the Corinthian church. We know that in a short time after this, it'll take hold in the Galatian churches. So Paul aware of the work of the devil, aware of how the devil's trying to tear up the, the work of God that he's established, is warning them ahead of time, trying to let them know. And what he says is very, very important. It's very instructive, and it's personal. He says, for we are the circumcision which worship, this word worship means minister to, God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. She's got a question about where do we worship God? The Jews say you worship in, uh, in Mount Zion. Our forefathers worship God here. What are we supposed to do? Jesus said God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what he's talking about here. He says we're the circumcision. Those of us that have circumcised our heart. Now he's not talking about whether or not they're physically circumcised. Because a lot of people in Philippi would not be and would have no reason to be. It wasn't a part of their culture. It wasn't a part of their heritage. So they would have no reason to be. Now the Jews would come in and tell these Gentile Christians, unless you are physically circumcised, you can't be saved. Yeah, that Jesus stuff that Paul preached, that's good, but we've got Moses who commanded circumcision. So, so Paul is talking about spiritual circumcision. He said, we're the circumcised ones. We're the ones that worship God in spirit. That's us. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, he says in the last part of verse 3, we have no confidence in the flesh. That means we have no confidence in our deeds, have no confidence in our history. See, the Jews would claim that they've always been the people of God, so they know. And that Paul, he just went rogue, went off the deep end somewhere or another. Yeah, he might be a Jew, but he's not a good one. Well, Paul is going to answer that. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. In other words, Paul is saying this. I know what these people do. 
these Judaizers come in and they demand circumcision of all the Gentiles, trying to make you think that'll put you in good stead with God. Well, everything that they've tried to attain through their good works, that's where I was. Now, Paul is going to elaborate and make some specific points to, to identify what he means. But get this, the only reason, the only way that the Jews were able to gain a foothold in these churches, the churches at Corinth and Galatia and others as well, but those are the main ones that take place in Paul's day. The only reason that they gained a foothold is because they convinced the people that there's some place with God that they can't yet have that the Jews already have. And Paul's saying, whatever that place is that they're telling you that they've got, I was there. So he gives us his list. Circumcised the eighth day. You know what that means? That means I didn't come out of paganism. I was born a Jew. Some of the very Judaizers that are trying to demand circumcision of the Gentile Christians are not natural born Jews. They're proselytes. So he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. In other words, what he's talking about is he's an inheritor. His inheritance is in the the nation of Israel. He was due that inheritance just like any other Christian or any other Jew would be, excuse me. He inherited all the privileges that belonged to that community. The next thing he says is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now that's kind of interesting because Benjamin, we don't know a whole lot about the tribe of Benjamin, but we know a couple of things. And the fact that Paul would mention it leads us to believe that these were important issues for him and with all the Jews. And that is this. When the 12 tribes separated, were split, ten and a half tribes went with the northern kingdom, one and a half tribes went with the southern kingdom. The one and a half tribes that went with the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom that everybody understands followed God, the northern kingdom worshipped idols and did all kinds of crazy things. The southern kingdom was made up of the tribe of Judah and half of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the one and a half tribes. And the most famous person that we have in history that was of the tribe of Benjamin was Saul. Now, the fact that Paul identifies himself as of the tribe of Benjamin might indicate that he was named for King Saul. Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. That was a good move. He's a lot more Paul than he was Saul. But he mentions circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What this means is Hebrew, a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. Now, here you've got to understand a little bit about the history for this to make any sense to you. You would assume that all Jews would be Hebrews, but not necessarily so. Because many years before, Alexander the Great had conquered the world. Greece was the, the world power, and the world began to speak Greek. Well, the Romans come along some hundred, several hundred years later, and they take over many of the Greek lands many years after Alexander's death and the death of his successors and so forth. Then Rome becomes a superpower, and so they incorporate a lot of the Greek culture. Well, the Hellenists were Jews who wanted to, to operate according to the Greek culture, but the Hebrews wanted to maintain the law of Moses and the strict adherence to the law. The way you could tell the difference between the Hellenists and the Hebrews was who could speak the Hebrew language. Now remember on Paul, concerning Paul and his uh, experience, 
tells us two things about this. Number one, it tells us that on the road to Damascus, when Jesus spoke to him out of the, out of the cloud, he fell off the, the donkey because of the shining light. And he heard a voice out of heaven. He heard it in the Hebrew language. He says so in Acts 26. The second thing is, when Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's brought under, under uh, attack by riot, he answers in the Hebrew tongue. In other words, the people that are coming against him saying that he's broken the laws of the temple and the Sabbath and all this other kind of stuff are speaking in Greek, and he answers them in Hebrew. Well, only the learned, Hebrew, only the learned Jews were the ones that really were proficient in Hebrew. And so it showed who he was and that he wasn't some low-class rabble-rouser, but that he was uh, of the intellectual class, if you will. So he says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two main groups in Jesus' day and still in Paul's day. The Sadducees were the ones that were, that were uh, primarily, there were doctrinal issues concerning angels and the resurrection of the dead and so forth that they had differences with the Pharisees. But as far as the, the, uh, the main social issues, the Sadducees wanted to incorporate some of the Greek culture into the temple worship and so forth, where the Pharisees wanted to, to be strict adherents to the law of Moses and the law of Moses alone. The name Pharisee means separated one. Apparently, the Pharisees were the heirs of the Hasidic Jews. Now, you've seen pictures of the Hasidic Jews. They're the ones that wear the black hats and they've got the ringlets down on the side of their, their, uh, off their temples and, and that kind of stuff. Ultra-Orthodox. Well, the Pharisees were the ultra-Orthodox of the day. So now, the ones that are coming in are the ones Paul is warning against coming in to the church, trying to impose some law of Moses because of orthodoxy. He's saying, I was one of them. So whatever they're telling you that you have to gain by being that, I was that. He goes further and says, uh, it's touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul talks about and identifies when he was telling his story to uh, Agrippa, I think it was. He tells that he was much more zealous than any of the men his age. Zealous of the traditions of his fathers much more than any of the, the men his age. In other words, whatever they tell you they're doing and for whatever reason because they're zealous of the things of God or whatever, they don't hold a candle to, the, to what I used to be. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now this is the real kicker. Paul establishes brick by brick, block by block, line upon line, an argument that I was more of what they say they are and what they say you need to be than they will ever be. And the final thing is concerning or touching the law, I was blameless. Paul is saying, I was righteous according to the law. I was righteous according to the law. That's what they're trying to attain by what they think is serving God by imposing these restrictions on you and demanding circumcision and so forth. But whatever they're trying to gain, whatever righteousness they're trying to attain by their zeal for God and their service of God, trying to obey the law, I was blameless concerning the law. Think about what that means. That means God had nothing against Paul based on the keeping of the law. But what things were counted to me were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. 
Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, what he's saying is very simply this. He's saying everything that I attained, which was everything you can attain by outward actions of, of keeping the law of Moses. Everything that I attained was, wor- was less than worthless. It not only had no value, it had a negative value. It had a negative value. It was worthy of one and only one thing, and that is discarding, throwing away. And that's why he uses the term dung. It literally means refuse. It means the one thing in the world that you would want to get away from you as far as possible more than any other thing in the world. And he's saying that was what everything was like that I attained by keeping the law of Moses. Again, remember remember that he's warning them. He's warning them against somebody coming in and telling them that there's something to gain by circumcision or keeping the law of Moses. Verse 9, and be, and be found in him. Uh, well, let me back up to verse 8 again. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, let me, let me stop and talk to you about this for a little bit. We read this as a book. We read this as doctrine, uh, instruction, words of the Holy Ghost given to us in order to help us live our lives and follow the Lord, right? This is a letter for Paul. It's a letter written to people that he loves. And so when he talks about, here's who I used to be, it's easy for us to be kind of sanitized in the in the idea and the the words themselves, because we didn't live them. But when Paul's talking about these things, he's remembering. He's reminding himself, here's who I used to be. Here's who I used to be. And he was everything that the righteousness of the law could give you, could make a person to be. That's who he was. He was as perfect as you could be under the law. He was able to stand before God and say, I am perfect before you according to the keeping of the law. And what did that get him? In one moment, the foundation of his own righteousness went out from under him on the road to Damascus. A light shined from heaven and he fell from the animal that he was riding. He heard a voice in the Hebrew tongue. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul asked two questions. The first question is, who art thou, Lord? Jesus identifies himself. He said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Now, we don't have any reason to believe or any reason to think that Paul had come across Jesus when he was alive here on the earth. They were of similar ages, and so that would mean uh, that there's a couple of possibilities, I guess. I can think of a couple. Maybe you can think of more. But Paul may have been living somewhere outside of Jerusalem during the three years that Jesus was ministering in Galilee and made trips in and out of Jerusalem. Um, Like I said, there may be other possibilities. That's the first one that really comes to my mind. 
And there's no way to prove one way or the other. But there is one thing that we should assume, and that is that at least by the time Paul gets back to Jerusalem, which is shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus, he certainly knows what the Pharisees thought about him. He certainly knows that. He was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that were instrumental in having Jesus crucified. And if nothing else, whatever he thought about Jesus' doctrine, he didn't hear it firsthand apparently, but whatever he was told about Jesus' doctrine, he probably was told by the Pharisees, and I'm sure they colored it whichever way they wanted it to be. So I doubt very seriously if he had a clear picture of what Jesus was really doing or really teaching or, or anything else like that. He was probably influenced by uh, the things that he had heard from others that were his mentors or whoever it might be. But one thing is, is for certain, and that is he would have disdained Jesus if for no other reason than Jesus was hung on a cross. Now, folks, this is the reason why the Pharisees were demanding not just the death of Jesus, but the crucifixion of Jesus. Because the Pharisees, who were the strict adherents to the law of Moses, could very easily, very easily promote the idea and convince the people, most of whom were ignorant and unlearned, they could very easily convince the, the population that he could not be, he meaning Jesus, could not be of God because he died the death that he died. Even if he was put to death wrongly, the Bible says very clearly, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And they knew this. That's why they were pushing for crucifixion. They weren't pushing for beheading. They weren't pushing to have Jesus scourged and put in prison and kept there for the rest of his life. He had to be crucified. Now, for the Pharisees, he had to be crucified so that he could once and for all be identified as a curse and not the Son of God. Not even a prophet, because a prophet wouldn't be cursed like that. And they could make the argument that if he was really from God, then God would not have allowed that kind of death. That was kind of the thinking of the thief on the cross, remember. If you are the Son of God, why don't you get us down here from here? Well, that's a great question. Why didn't he? Because that death was the necessary death to pay, the sin, pay for the sins of the people. So Paul, if, it, if for no, no other reason, nothing else was involved, Paul would have disdained Jesus before he met him on the road to Damascus for the death that he died. And it was that that added to Paul's zeal to persecute the church. That's why he was willing to put in prison and even have killed people that were claiming to be followers of Jesus. Why would you follow somebody that's obviously cursed of God because of the death that they died? That couldn't be God. It can't be according to the plan and the purpose of God. So he was persecuting them and doing as much harm to them as he could with all of his might. And all that changes in one moment of time. When Jesus identifies himself, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Paul sees two things. Number one, he sees Jesus is alive. But number two, he sees that Jesus is not condemning him. He didn't say, your time is up, Paul. You have no idea how bad you stepped in it. In other words, he saw that Jesus was alive. He saw that Jesus loved him. In one moment of time, he loved him because he spared him. So then Paul asks another question. Second question he asks while he's blinded by the light. He said, what would you have me do, Lord? 
And he spent the rest of his life getting the answer to that. He spent the rest of his life serving Jesus. From that moment, he saw, his, he saw the love of God, which drew him in, instantly changed his life, and he became a bond slave, a willing bond slave to Jesus from that moment forward. Now, folks, think about this for a minute. Again, it's a story for us, but for Paul, this was his experience. Paul's talking about he found a different kind of righteousness, one that he didn't have anything to do with. It's a better righteousness because it's the righteousness of God. You can't have any better righteousness than the one that God gives you. It's the one that's of him. And you receive that through faith, not through works, not through circumcision, not through the keeping of the law, not by being born of Israel or being a proselyte to the Jews or anything like that. There's a better righteousness. Now think about what that means to Paul when he's telling the story about what he found. Can you hear him telling his story? I know I'm adding words here, but this, is ha- this has to be what Paul felt. And I'm sure that he's told these people his experience. I'm sure they know about the Acts 9 experience on the road to Damascus. He may have filled in the blanks that, that we don't even have knowledge of. He may have given them more information than we have. But what he's saying is very simply this. He's saying, in one moment of time, I found the love of God, and I found his love was for me. He accepted me. He had a place for me. Now, of all the things Paul said that he was, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the, more zealous than anybody else, concerning the law of righteous of the tribe of Benjamin, whatever else is on the list. Of all of those things, he saw in one moment of time on the road to Damascus that he was the chiefest of sinners. Because the very fact that Jesus identifies himself in the voice and says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. That means everything that Paul has done through his zeal in persecuting the church has been a sin against God. It's not lost on him. He knows that. He sees instantly that he's the chiefest of sinners as he describes himself later on. And that Jesus loved him and had a place for him anyway. You know, um, there's, a, there's a drawing. The love of God has a drawing power to it that I think a lot of times we discount. I know that in dealing with people that are at the edge of death, particularly people that, uh, that go into comas and semi-conscious states and stuff like that, we want them to come back and we want them to be with us. But folks, you need to understand something. Once somebody sees Jesus, game's over. There's nothing to come back for. Paul telling us about his own experience in being caught up into heaven as well as what we know in Acts chapter 9, having seen Jesus. Paul's ready to go right away. He writes to this Philippian church. If it's up to me, I'd leave now. Well, he was long before finished with his work. Why was he so ready to go? Because once you have an experience with that drawing love of Jesus, it has an impact on your life that never changed, that everything changes and you don't go back to where you were. I know a lot of people want to see heaven. Oh, Lord, just show us heaven. You couldn't stay if you saw it. If God let everybody see a vision of heaven, he'd lose all of his workforce here on the earth. 
lot of times people pray and have desires to see things like Paul saw and, and have an experience with Jesus face to face and stuff like that. It's a good thing for the kingdom of God that those are few and far between. Because there's a drawing power to the love of God. Now that drawing power should be exhibited here on the earth between us. But I'm not sure there's anything that can compare to seeing Jesus for yourself. Paul goes on to say, he counts all things but lost, that he may win Christ and be found in him. Now notice the difference between being in Christ and being found in him. He knows that since he's been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus by his born-again experience, he knows that he's in Christ. What does he mean to be found in him then? It means to show forth the righteousness in his life that God has made him from his heart. That's what he's after, to be an example of the righteousness that he is on the inside, to be an example of the righteousness of God that he was recreated unto, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is to do the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, that I may know him. Notice the drawing power. Notice the impact of his experience. That I may know him. Now compare and contrast that with some people that, and I'm not talking about, uh, well, I don't know how to say this. Um, I don't want you to get somebody in your mind and and say, well, Paul had a real born-again experience, and, and this other person that I'm thinking about, they didn't have the same kind of thing at all. That's not really what I'm trying to get at. Although, I do want you to recognize how few people whose lives are absolutely changed once and for all for good from that point forward, from that moment forward through the new birth. Paul had a complete 180 degree turnaround. He was never the same. He never had the same desires that he had before. He never had the same ambitions that he had before. From that point forward, the only thing he cares about is knowing Jesus. Something happened to him that created that kind of desire. Now, some of us developed that over many, many years of following God and, 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 you know, through fellowship and prayer and study the word, and, and, and that's great. But it didn't take Paul a long time to get to the place where Jesus was all that mattered. It was an instantaneous thing for him. I think there ought to be a little bit more commitment on our parts. A little bit more of those kind of results. Don't you think? That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. There's a little bit of a play on words here, but you need to understand something else about what's going on. And we get some information from the Corinthian experience and and, uh, what was going on in the Corinthian church. Paul identifies that there were people in the Corinthian church, which letter was written about the same time as this. Um, In the Corinthian church, there were those that had come into the, the assembly... And they said things like, well, you know, Paul must not have matured spiritually to the point 
where he's walking in his kingly glory here on the earth. Because if he was, he wouldn't be in prison. He wouldn't be beaten like he is. He wouldn't be the spectacle that he is. But we have already attained that place. So when Paul talks about not having already attained, he realizes that there are people among them, maybe not among the Philippian church. Again, we don't know that this is present with them. Could be. But Paul's smart enough to know that if the devil attacks one church that way, he's going to do it with others. So he realizes that there are going to be people that come along that claim to be spiritually mature and spiritually developed to the point, much greater than Paul, to the point where they're already operating in their kingly glory. Now, Paul answered this to the Corinthians and he, he, with kind of a sarcasm, sarcastic response. He said, well, I really wish that were true. Because if it were true for you, it would be true for me too, and I could get out of some of this mess. But notice that Paul identifies the fellowship of his sufferings along with some of, one of the things that he wants to experience. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think all of us would be glad to have those two things. But item number three is not necessarily on our list. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul understood something that we don't get. And that is that the fellowship of his sufferings is an indispensable part that develops a closeness of fellowship with Jesus. Now, I've got to be careful that I don't cross over between Sunday morning series and Wednesday night series. But just kind of from a broad perspective, the church was established uh, 27, 28 years before Paul writes this letter to, to the Philippians. The church is 27 or 28 years old, in other words. It was 27 or 28 years before that Jesus was raised from the dead and people started being saved. We know of times in church history where people were put to death for their beliefs and martyred and so forth. But those times are few and far between, really, when you look at the 2,000 years of history. There were certain pockets, certain periods, but most of those were for shorter periods of time and then they ended. I'm sure they were long enough for the people involved. But those experiences ended. And so for us, martyrdom is an aberration. Since the church is only 27 or 28 years old, that's younger than this church. You realize that. We started this church 30 years ago, this local congregation. So Paul, presiding in the place that God has given him over the church as a whole for a shorter period of time than what I've been pastor here, he didn't have much experience with Christians living out their lives and then others being martyred. He's got a little bit of experience where the church had times of peace, but now he's facing his own death. Two or three years after he writes this letter, he will be killed by Caesar, Nero. So for the early church, they couldn't look at times of martyrdom and times of peace. It was all pretty much 
Everybody's life is in your own hands. What are you going to do about Jesus? So when Paul talks about that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that is a real serious firsthand meaning for him. I don't know what it means for you. We have to decide that for ourselves. But it has a real specific meaning for Paul. Remember, he's in prison. <coughs> he doesn't know how this thing's going to go. He's got a good idea. He's got a confidence that he's going to be released. But remember, he's just told him in the previous chapter, I'll send Timothy to you once I find out for sure what's going to happen to me. So he's not 100% sure. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained. I'm not perfect. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Again, he's talking about his own experience. When I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, I was immediately, instantly apprehended by God. Now I'm going to continue to grow and develop spiritually and mature in the things of God so I can take hold of what took hold of me. Brethren, verse 13, I count myself, count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Again, he's referring to those that are saying that they're more spiritually, spiritually mature than him. And those that are really haven't done anything that are claiming that they're everything. He says, I don't, continue, I don't consider myself to have attained. I'm not at my full measure of growth like they say they are. But this one thing I do. Now, if you can underline in your Bible, if that's not a sin against God for you, I really recommend that you mark this verse. This one thing I do. Notice what Paul says in his attempt and his goal to develop and mature spiritually. He says, this one thing I do. In other words, this is first and foremost for me in my spiritual growth and my spiritual development in my attempt to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This one thing I do, forgetting those things are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, if you're going to develop in God, if you're going to mature and you're going to come to the place of full measure that God wants you to be, this is the one thing you're going to have to do. You're going to have to forget those things that are behind. And he, he changes examples here. He starts talking about an athletic contest. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. He uses something that these people are very familiar with. Everybody knows about the the, uh, the Olympics and the Greek games that were continued in the Roman Empire. The prize was given in each one of these contests, whether it was a local matter in some of the outlying colonies or whether it was in the Roman Colosseum itself. The prize would be the overall winner, kind of like the decathlete in, uh, in modern-day games. The overall winner of the contest would be called up, in some cases in the Roman games, Roman Colosseum, it would be by Caesar himself, to be given the prize. Now, there'd be hundreds of contestants. There'd be hundreds of people that were involved in the competitions and so forth. But one person, and only one person, could get the prize. 
And that's what Paul says he's looking for. Of course, the one he's looking to give him the prize would be Jesus himself. In other words, in the Roman games, when the emperor would call out the winner of the, the contest, the supreme athlete, whoever it was, his name would be called forth in the Colosseum. And this athlete would come with great pride to present himself before Caesar to receive the, the wreath or whatever it is they'd put on his head, crown upon his head or whatever special award that there was. And it would be a sign of his faithful, hard, diligent work having paid off. And that's the example Jesus uses. Now, forgetting those things are behind, what he's saying is simply this. And, and this is what the words literally means. It means I don't look over my shoulder. I don't look over my shoulder. Now imagine, let's use a, a, a race or contest, athletic contest to finish the illustration that Paul's using. Imagine that there's a, a, a contest that somebody's going to have to make three laps or, or let's say four laps around the field. And each lap, the coach working with the athlete sets a goal. You're going to have to make each one of these laps in 45 seconds. And on the fourth lap, you're going to have to really kick it for the last 100 yards or whatever the case might be. Well, the race starts. They make the first lap. And the coach is standing there with a stopwatch. And he hollers out, 58.6 seconds. You're going to have to pick it up. So he does. He starts picking it up. He's running. He's thinking, man, I'm 13.6 seconds behind my, my goal. That was a terrible lap. I can't believe I ran that so slow. He comes around for a second lap, and his coach is standing there ready to give him his time for a second lap. And all of a sudden, there's somebody he doesn't recognize standing right next to his coach saying, you might as well quit. That first lap was 58.6 seconds. And that's what the devil does to you when you're running your race. Now, he may have run that second lap in 33 seconds. He may have caught up. But if all he hears and all he focuses on that first lap and how lousy it was, then there's no way he's going to finish the race and win the prize. That's what Paul's talking about. There's no point in looking over your shoulder and remembering what you did wrong because you're still in the race. Maybe you had a terrible first lap. Maybe you stumbled and fell, but you're still in the race and you can still catch up. You see what he's saying? Paul has come to the place of spiritual maturity where he's not bothered anymore by faults, failures, or weaknesses of his own or in other people. He'll help when he can, but he's not affected by those anymore. And folks, that's a real sign of spiritual maturity. And that's what Paul says. He said, if you're going to press forward and win the prize, you're going to have to give up what went wrong in your past. Now think about what that means for Paul. That means he had to put behind him the persecuting and the putting to death of Christians. That which made him the chiefest of sinners. He could make all kinds of excuses for himself. Saying, well, I was, I was just doing it out of zeal for God. I thought I was doing right. But folks, you can't get any greater sin than killing Christians for loving Jesus. Now that he knows and loves Jesus too. He had a lot to forget. He had a lot to refuse to look over his shoulder and remember. So he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 15. 
Let us therefore, as many as be perfect. Now this word perfect means complete. It means mature. He says, here's what mature people think. Let us therefore, as many as be mature, be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this, even this, unto you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying two things. He's saying, now, if you're in a different place than I am, and your goal and your ambition is not to serve God like me, then God will show you. God will reveal that to you, and he'll show you what you need to change. He'll show you how to change your attitudes, show you what you're thinking to change, to adjust, and so forth. But he's also talking about those that claim to have already attained perfection, those that have claimed to be so spiritually mature that they're walking in their kingly glory here on the earth. And that's why they're not in prison. That's why they're not undergoing any of the problems that Paul is. And he's saying this. He's saying anybody that doesn't have this opinion, anybody that doesn't think like this, no matter how spiritually mature or complete they claim to be, God will show it to you through their attitudes. In other words, he's telling them how to judge spiritual maturity. Not only for themselves, but in others as well. Nevertheless, whereto, you have already, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which so walk as you have us for an example. In other words, he's saying, use us as imitators or being imitators of us. Use us as examples. And the others that walk the way that I do too, Use them as examples to follow as well. Now, he's already identified two people in this letter that fit into that category. One was Timothy, and the other was Epaphroditus. He's saying they're good examples to follow too. So he's saying use for examples, not the ones that claim to be so spiritually mature, but the ones that have attained a level of spiritual maturity so that they've got their attitudes and they've got their priorities in the right place. Verse 18, For many walk of whom I've told you often and now even tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he's not talking about the Jews again. He's talking about those libertines who would enter into the church and did in many other churches, Corinth being one, that would enter in and say that anything you want to do is good. You're free in Jesus, and so any way you want to live, any actions you want to take part in, is fine with God. God will, be, God will be okay with that. It's kind of like uh, some of the extreme grace teaching you hear about today. God's not looking at your behavior. Well, Paul didn't seem to understand that then. He says, use us as examples to follow. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly. Now, the word belly literally means appetites. He's talking about sexual desires. The reason that he's saying that the libertines, or as an example of these type of people, would come in and say, anything you want to do is okay. God, God's okay with whatever behavior you want. There's not a strict lifestyle anymore because we're free in Christ. He said that's so that they can serve their sexual appetites. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who mind earthly things. In other words, he's saying they're proud of the things they should be ashamed of. Folks, you see a lot of that in the body of Christ today. The church's attitude, or much of the church's attitude toward homosexuality, 
They claim to be tolerant. They're proud of what they should be ashamed of. For our conversation, he ends with this, for our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation means community. In other words, he's saying we're citizens of heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. In other words, he's saying there's still a judgment day coming. Jesus is coming for the church, and it's going to be a reward for those of us that live according to his plan and purpose. But there's a destruction time, too, for those that live according to their own flesh. Um, about 140, 150 years later, there's a, a Roman historian called, called uh, uh, what's his name? Hippo, Hippo, uh, it's not Hippocrates, it's Hippolytus or something like that. Hippo, whatever his name is. And he writes about a, a certain group of people in the that had uh, come out of the church they were called simonians there was some guy named simon that was the leader of the group and they were proud and bragged about their promiscuity because they said that that was the meaning of perfect love folks you need to realize that there are always two ditches on every road a ditch on each side the devil wants to get you so strict and so tightened up about things that you can't enjoy the liberty that God intends for you to have. But the other side of the road is a ditch where he wants to push you into doing anything and everything and telling you that that's okay with God too. The key to successful driving is stay between the ditches. It's a good key to follow in life. Thank God Jesus is coming. Who shall change our vile bodies. I like the way Paul says this. Who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the glimpse that we have into Paul's experience with you and the attitude that he developed through his close fellowship with you. Let us, Father, as we pursue spiritual maturity, even as Paul did, that we be thus minded and followers of Paul and others who lived according to a good and godly lifestyle, who understood that Jesus, the pursuit of knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings is the only true and worthy goal that there is in life to pursue. Lord, if any of us be otherwise minded, reveal it to us. That we might walk worthy of you unto all pleasing. Being fruitful unto every good work. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.